0: Peter Stapleton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Love chatting about anything, really.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I've been particularly looking forward to this uh, interview and and chance to speak with you because EFT tapping has come up so much for me, but I've never gone into it and, and I don't know enough about it and I don't understand it. And so, I'm talking to the person to talk to about that. I'm hoping you can help me understand what it is, how it works, all these kind of things, and maybe just explain it in layman's terms because um, at the end of the day, I'm just a boy from the blocks trying to figure out how to look after myself. Um, And so, yeah, maybe if we could start there, like how you got into EFT tapping and what it is and how it works.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is a topic I could talk for hours about. (laughs) So... Really, um EFT emotional freedom technique, so that's just the official word, everyone calls it tapping because we're tapping with two fingers on a known acupuncture point in the body. So that's why I get nicknamed tapping. It's most simply a stress reduction technique. So it's just a way to reduce stress in the brain and the body. We can go there, we can talk about what all the research shows about that. Um, How I got into it just very briefly. So it was 20 years ago. So tapping's actually been around for probably 50 plus years now. It was in an earlier version where out of kinesiology and there was an Australian researcher, practitioner, as well as an American psychiatrist. And so there was sort of some versions of it. The current version that we use and that we test has been around for about 40 odd years. So... It had been out there, of course, it was just being taught to people that wanted to come and learn about stress and then it made its way into the research world. So fast forward, 20 years ago for me, um, I had a colleague and I was complaining to him. So my clinical area is eating disorders. A lot of traditional talk therapy not working well for anorexia, bulimia, nervosa. So I was complaining. As you do, you whinge to your colleagues <laughs> and um, none of this stuff works, taking it a bit personally, kind of going, I've done all this study at uni and none of my clients are getting better and he says hey i've come across this weird thing and that's how he describes it this weird thing on the internet Mm -hmm. i think it might work i don't even know what he's talking about i just dismiss him anyway i'm running a local support group for eating disorders he comes along to help me out and a young girl has a panic attack in the group and there's about 40 women sitting there and he says i'll just take her outside so I keep chatting, talking, whatever I'm talking about on the night. And they came back within about five or six minutes. Now, she'd been fully hyperventilating, full panic attack. And she came back and she was calm and she was composed to the point where I thought she might he might have slipped her a valium. And I thought, oh, that's a bit unethical. You know, Better have a chat to him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the group finishes, everyone goes home. And I said, what happened there? Like, Tell me you didn't kind of do anything dodgy. And he said, no, I did that tapping thing I've been trying to tell you about and she calmed down really fast and came back to the group. So because I'd seen sort of an interaction because I had no idea what he was talking about, I said, okay, tell me more. What what is this? Now, 20 years ago we knew nothing about how this worked. We just went off and learnt it and went, "Mm, okay, seems to be interesting. The first training I ever did, I gave up chocolate chocolate craving. And to this day, 20 odd years later, my girls don't really, my daughters don't even eat chocolate much because it's never been in our house. So we were like, oh, well, this seems to work. Let's just run with it. Teach our clients. Lo and behold, they start to get better. People lose weight that were overweight. People recover from their eating disorder. Doctors started to say, we don't know what you're doing, but just do that tapping thing. So somewhere a couple of years later, my university position at the time Allowed me to do research. And I said to my boss, who was a traditional GP, general practitioner, I said, Oh, I've been mucking around with this tapping thing. Could I do a research trial on that? Showed him what it was and said, We'll just help people get over their food cravings and lose weight. So we'll just look at people that are overweight, you know, or obese. And he laughed. He said, Yeah, okay, you can do whatever you like, but I don't think anyone will come to that trial. It's just too ridiculous. I'm like, oh, well, let's see. So I went on like a local current affair program, showcased this technique, said, look, it's free. If anyone's interested, ring the university. It'll go for four weeks. We only wanted about 100 people and four and a half thousand people responded to that TV segment. And my boss just looked at me and went, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) So, So that was our very first trial about 18 years ago. And I've spent 18 years researching it. In my academic world for different kind of conditions and certainly we did 12 years in the weight space just to kind of really refine what we were doing so all we're doing is reducing stress so when we have stress stress in a food craving is that urge that craving to eat if it was a drug and alcohol problem it's the same crest of the wave And we've recently spent two years doing chronic pain trials. It's just stress in the body. So if you reduce stress, you get changes in other, not only biochemistry, but subjective feelings. So, you know, chronic pain is often quite subjective and psychological.
0: Mm.
1: So we've done depression trials, cancer trials, high school trials, smoking trials, um, you know, certainly stress, plain stress trials and lots of the food craving research. We're currently in the middle of an OCD trial, loads of applications. But the only thing we're targeting is stress. So we're reducing stress to see if we'll get shifts in, in other kind of areas of life. I said it would be short. That was like the longest story ever. (laughs) So that's sort of how I got into it. And um, it changed my life. Like, I I look back and think, had that colleague not ever said anything to me, I don't know if anyone else would have ever let me know.
0: Mm, It's amazing these like points in time where things like that happen and they just like, it's like a divergent shift in our life and direction and what we do, which is probably a whole nother conversation. Maybe we'll get back there later. The thing I want to know is like, so, we pick an acupressure point what point do we pick and why mm. and then what is it about the tapping because i can kind of understand like at the end of the day our brain it, like whether it's physical emotional or whatever it's just like receiving information mm. so what is it about the kind of information that we're giving it when we're tapping and is there like a i'm thinking it's like an electrical thing so is there like a frequency that we need to put in yeah just be great if you could unpack that a little bit
1: so the there's only eight acupuncture points that we use and they were the eight that were actually picked if you like by the original person that put together uh, eft the current version of it so we just use those eight that we've been testing in all research for 20 years uh, worldwide just to get that baseline of hey that original method actually works so luckily the last five to eight years Korean researchers have actually shown that the acupuncture system in the body, you know, have you go into an acupuncture office, you see that meridian chart. Yeah. So that was always thought to be an energy line in the body um, and had these acupuncture points. They've actually proven now that that meridian system, and this has always been a mental block for some people, It's not energetic. It's actually vascular. It's a concrete duct system in the body. So you can inject dye into it. You can see the acupuncture point that, you know, corresponds with those charts. You can see it sort of as a density point. You can see it running along the lines. So that's made our life so much easier to sort of say, well.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah.
1: Now we have a direct kind of explanation for why the amygdala, the stress center in the brain reduces inactivity when you tap on that point. And you asked, what is happening is if you're actually tapping on a known acupuncture point, there is just one there under your eye. And you're tapping there and you're keeping your mind focused on your problem. So Tapping is a very mindful activity. You actually have to say what your problem is. You're not tapping and saying a positive affirmation or how you want to feel. You're acknowledging so that the brain can have the thing, but then it reduces through the tapping. So that tapping is converted to an electrical signal. Collagen is one of the semiconductors, and it sends it back through that. It's called the primovascular system, not the meridians. And it sends it back to the amygdala, And Harvard University did 10 years showing that if you stimulate an acupuncture point, the amygdala just gets less active, which then means you don't feel as stressed. So it's like, cool, we've now got this fully scientific explanation. We're going to get past the whole energy thing that makes people glaze Mm -hmm. over. Because if you tap on a pressure point and you focus on something that's stressing you out or making you feel distressed, you will actually get uh kind of remediation of that feeling. And then there's a whole other theory that explains why that lasts over time. Mm. So in our food craving trials, people would come for eight weeks, do their tapping on whatever food they wanted. We followed them up six months, 12 months, and two years later and said, how's that food? And they just look at you blankly and go, I can't even remember what I did tapping on. Mm. And so we would remind them, hey, you were eating 25 Kit Kat chocolate bars a day. And they'll just look at you and go, was I? And you're like, Mm. yeah. And Mm. they're like, I don't remember because I don't eat that. So you get this memory reconsolidation where even if someone's tapping on a trauma, because obviously it is used for PTSD and they go and they process trauma, you could go back to them a year later and say, do you ever think about that? And they would say, I've never even thought about it. And even if I think about it now, I don't get any distress. So the neurological changes that occur after you reduce that intensity last, and they appear to last forever.
0: Fascinating. So it's very cool. Yeah, it's powerful. And what is it about, like, why are we tapping and why are we not just holding
1: Yes, and you can do either. So certainly if we run chronic pain trials and we have patients with fibromyalgia who are sore, they don't have to actually tap. Tapping was the original version. Um, so you can just touch and hold. And sometimes for people with sensitivities, uh, and it's even used with autism spectrum disorders, they don't want to tap. That might be too stimulating. Uh, so you can just touch and that will still activate the pressure point. The most important thing is to actually make sure you hit the acupuncture point because they're not everywhere in the body. We just have eight to make it nice and simple for humans to for a formula because if you go, just pick any points you like, they'll be like, I don't know which ones to yeah, do, do, do. Yeah, so you can just touch.
0: Mm, okay, cool. And I'm now thinking about is there some connection between this and like TENS machines which are also putting electrical pulses into the body? Is there a similar kind of... Yeah,
1: interesting question. I haven't seen any research because we do talk about TENS machines in chronic pain lectures and things like that, but I haven't seen anything that's sort of had a look at the comparison between the two. But the TENS machine, to my understanding, is trying to stimulate endorphins to actually allow someone's pain or muscle tension to change so they feel feel better e.g relaxed and certainly in tapping people can it's not common and we're not trying to make this a goal but people can feel quite trance-like when they tap or even meditative or they might actually even start to feel really good by the end when something doesn't bother them anymore that's not always the end goal but they will report some which probably tells you endorphins have been released
0: yeah, interesting. Uh, I remember my partner and I had a, a home birth at the end of last year and TENS machine regularly came up when we're doing like hypnobirthing training for those reasons, like to get the endorphins going and yeah, yeah. deal with what otherwise might feel really um, painful. Um, okay, this is great. This is starting to make sense to me now. I'm curious like how you would perhaps explain the nervous system or, or maybe, maybe a better question is like based on what you've learned over the last, 20 years how do you kind of see the nervous system now and and how do you understand it differently to how you did back in the day
1: yeah we are absolutely investigating this level of you know how tapping works in current research because ultimately because the mechanism of how this works has always been the question mark for people to accept it so it's kind of like they used to think it was energetic meridians. Now we're like, oh, actually, that primavascular system's physical. We are actually indeed having an impact there. And now we are looking at the autonomic nervous system and we're saying, hmm, it's really interesting. Tapping is one energy psychology technique, but certainly there's lots of other ones. Is what any of these techniques doing regulating the autonomic nervous system and that is what's making people feel better, coping better, you know, having different interactions in life. Is that whole autonomic nervous system being regulated either through tapping or, you know, another energy psychology technique? So we're actually looking at about 10 of them at the moment. We've most recently had a look at uh, the vagus nerve so the vagus nerve running from the stomach up to the cheek. And we did research in our chronic pain trial with Stephen Porger's team from the US. So he sent me five little machines that are heart rate variability that clip on the ear. And with certain movements, you see your vagus nerve efficiency how so then we talk about without going deep into polyvagal theory you know is someone with chronic pain really coming from a dorsal vagal that really evolutionary old vagus system response which is more that freeze flight flight freeze faint fawn kind of response and lo and behold what we found was a six-week tapping program for chronic pain and we did fmri on these patients that also had vagus nerve activity It was in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. So we only had 18, I'm trying to remember, 18 patients that could come into my office. Um, So we didn't publish it, but it was our first stage. And so not only did their vagus nerve activity improve, they were more efficient. They could cope better. They could respond better. Their chronic pain reduced in the brain. Mm -hmm. So their MRIs in the exact same patient showed. So it's like in line that... Pain invades other areas of the brain, which means it's more easy to feel pain with tiny movements. And it came back and looked like, and this is published, it looked like a non chronic pain patient in their brain six weeks later. And then at the same time, Stephen's team are like, hey, you're actually having an impact on their vagus nerve activity. And we're like, yes. So now our next phase is run a bigger trial. So polyvagal theories like this extra layer for us in that whole autonomic nervous system, you know, and as a self-applied, and we teach this to kids as young as four years old, a self-applied technique that you can just carry around with you to feel better and not have stress if something comes up, I just kind of go, why wouldn't you actually learn something like this, you know, Mm -hmm. let alone um, all the research that we do? So that's where we're at with that nervous system. We're literally going from you know, that heightened sympathetic nervous system, bringing people back in as fast as 10 minutes with a bit of tapping. And just a side note, we ran two depression trials with major depression. Now, major depression is too much parasympathetic nervous activity. So these patients, so if that's your middle, these patients breathe too much, keep themselves really low. So tapping in that case activated them. So then they didn't meet depression anymore. So that that whole kind of, you know, to and fro in that autonomic nervous system is not just about let's calm down. Some people, it's about let's activate you and tapping and we compared that to cognitive behavioral therapy and those patients didn't get any better. So tapping was able to bring them up and increase their energy. So it's just about what you apply it for.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. It's that just shows it's a true way to regulate because regulate doesn't always mean down regulate. It means regulate, which might mean you need upregulation from where you're at. That's fine. Yeah, love that. That's really cool. And so what was the protocol that these 18 patients were on during that study?
1: Yeah, so the, that was the chronic pain study. So it originally was all an in-person trial, of course, the pandemic. So we quickly pivoted to being online. We had two arms of that study where there was a live version where people logged on, had live group treatment once a week for six weeks, but two-hour sessions. So they had a 12-hour tapping program over six weeks. The other version that they did was a pre pre-recorded six-week program so all videos of me that they watch tap along because we wanted to know particularly in the chronic pain space in the Australian market they're trying to move patients to self-managed chronic pain programs so we're all like can they put themselves through this program obviously we drip feed so they can't watch six weeks worth of videos in the first week right. so drip feed and lo and behold, and then we compared the two. So lo and behold, the two programs were not only highly comparable, they got exactly the same outcomes. The self-paced version got one extra outcome that the live version didn't. And we were like, oh, wow, they actually did better (laughs) because they were able to pace themselves, but they ultimately got the exact same outcomes, which tells us you can treat yourself with EFT if you're following kind of program that we knew we had developed and written that you know, was hitting the mark for what goes on for these patients and you can actually do it by yourself and get the same outcomes. So, yeah, so really interesting. We did six-month follow-up on that cohort as well and the MRI aspect was done on 25 of them. 18 of them had that polyvagal measurement as well, the vagal nerve. And so those papers have already been published uh, along the way. So mm-hmm. we hope to revisit that. We actually do want to revisit that trial and run it again.
0: And were they doing like 10 minutes a day? Is that what it was?
1: They did a two-hour session once a week. Yep. Uh, we said to them, if you want to tap in between sessions, you can. If you don't want to, because maybe they're a bit worried about when the amygdala gets quiet and less activity, the hippocampus, the memory centre, which is its neighbour, often will wake up and give them memories from the past. So we often look for that, particularly if there's some sort of trauma that might have been a precipitator for this pain because uh, they didn't all have an injury or an accident that precipitated their chronic pain. So sometimes they were worried about tapping on their own at home in case that happened because they're like, oh. So we said to them, if you didn't want to tap in between sessions, you didn't have to. Um, and to be honest, even in our food craving research, people are a little bit slack, don't want to do homework. It's a leftover school thing, I think. So they only do the tapping in the trial.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting and just kind of talks to like the difficulty when trying to do healing, you know, like dealing with PTSD or some sort of early childhood trauma or something like that. And you start to do something which like it can unravel these things which may have been repressed or they're in there but you're not even aware and then they come out and that's fucking scary. Totally yeah really really interesting about the hippocampus kind of turning on and those memories coming through Mm. that's fascinating and also your point around like that follow-up six months after and there's still signs that or like the people eating 20 kitkats a day and then hey didn't kind of remember doing that it makes me think like is there something happening in the brain? Because it sounds like they're building new neural pathways and yeah. new neurons and things because they're, they're thinking differently now. Is there something happening in there as well, aside from the nervous system?
1: Yeah. So, it seems that Bruce Eckers' work in memory reconsolidation and is about any deep healing technique. So, we've got research that sits out here that says when you start to do deep change techniques, so anything that will get into the unconscious, you know, even past memories, could be EMDR, could be somatic processing, NLP, whatever you want. When you start to do that deep work, the brain starts to open up and you get a window of four to five hours. So as soon as you start to kind of hypnosis might do it to you, it's like if these were my neurons and, you know, connected um, BDNF, that brain-derived neurotropic factor. Um, So the brain is like this. So the neurons separate because you're changing something now it's not that the new behavior response lack of food craving pain rewires somewhere else it rewires in the same place so it pulls out and then you've got a window of four to five hours before it'll reconsolidate back down but it literally rewires in the same area which means it's really important when we're doing trauma work for example with a patient that maybe has got something they come in and they're like, really want to work through this memory and what happened to me when I was five. That when they leave the therapy room, they don't go and interact with someone that might have been in that first memory or put themselves at risk of being re triggered because the brain may not rewire back down with the new response. So we're really and we teach this to our not only our students at university, but our EFT practitioners that perhaps are training to do this, um, you know, as a career, we're like, let tell them to come and have a sleep that is the most that's the the best thing that you could actually do to help that brain rewire down even if you're doing your own meditation practice and something comes up it's like protect yourself for the next couple of hours because it's still open to change so it rewires back down and people can feel quite kind of cotton woolly in their head like we'll run a three-day training and our therapists are all here like space cadets because They've been tapping on themselves while they learn all the applications. But then a week later, they're like, oh, wow, I'm like a different person. I just didn't have that same reaction or I don't need that food craving or whatever it might be that they did. So there's some really important information that people need to know when they're doing deep change technique that comes out of research. So it is we're getting a, a rewiring in that same place. So, therefore, the old behaviour is not over here competing, which is what a lot of talk therapies do. Talk therapies, e.g., and I teach them at master's level, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, is trying to teach you, make this conversation in your head louder than this one.
0: Mm.
1: Forever 20 years ago, I kind of went, oh, that seems too hard. Yeah, <laughs> because I was, like, it's spot on. I was looking, I'm like...
0: Because that requires will.
1: 100%.
0: And if that's not always available in spades, you know.
1: So I was always open-minded way back in the day before tapping came along. I trained in timeline therapy, neuro-linguistic programming, and that was way outside the square for a psychologist because I'm like, oh, surely there has to be other things, <laughs> guided imagery, you know, things like that. You're like, oh, this stuff works, you know, quite nice if you just want to lie down and imagine going back in your timeline. Then tapping came along, of course, EMDR sort of came out um, in that sort of, you know, era as well. And it's been kind of approved now. But yeah, it was always for me about, and to this day, clients will still say, I catch myself having the negative thought, but sometimes I don't have that sort of, you know, strength or I'm worn out or, you know, I'm tired and I can't, counter it. I can't. And I'm like, that's because you're trying to rewire something from another area of your brain to become a louder voice and the dominant one. So this one sort of doesn't, I go, why can't we just rewire this one? Because not everyone wants to be tapping, but it's like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> so yeah, it is. It's coming in from a different angle. That's all it is. It's still trying to get this same outcome, but a different angle. It also explains why positive affirmations take a very long time to work because, you know, bless Louise Hay, my book is published with Hay House, but trying to say a positive affirmation that contradicts one that you've had a lifelong core belief of I'm not good enough and over here you're saying, my life is fantastic, I'm good enough, everyone loves me, and the brain's going, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't. It takes like 25 years before, you know, that voice will actually go, I think this is my new reality. And I'm too impatient. I think that's what it is at heart. I'm just like, yeah, no, I don't have time for that. I need to change this now. <laughs> so that was always my my driving force.
0: <laughs> what do you think it is yeah. that made that kind of older way of thinking so appealing to people? Because it was, I mean, Louisa was huge, you know, and still today people talk about affirmations and and that kind of more old school way of thinking like, well, yes. what, is, what is so appealing about it
1: hundred percent. And she did do tapping in the last five years, you know, in the corner of the Tapping Solution because he's published by them, was able to share that. And she openly was interviewed just saying, I wish I would learned this, you know, 70 years earlier because she'd had sexual abuse in her background and her way of coping with that. And she talks about it was she used to imagine that younger version of herself high up in a a clock tower in a room where she felt safe. And that was her guided imagery to keep that aspect of herself. And Nick was able to kind of help use tapping to process it so that she didn't have to have that young self. So people find strategies. I think positive affirmations, a lot of psychology, if it feels better to say the positive, it's more appealing in tapping we appear to say the negative. So I'm tapping and I'm going, I feel really stressed. I'm so overwhelmed at the moment. I'm so stressed about what's happening at work. And so, and people go, why am I saying the negative? And the answer is you're not saying the negative, you're saying the truth. That's what's happening for you right here, right now. It's like you're really stressed. You're in pain. You feel, you know, angry. So you have to say it. And that is often sort of a curveball because people kind of, look at you particularly psychologists that we train they're like oh i'm used to reframing and we're like yeah don't do any of that yeah. don't reframe be honest yeah. you won't have to be honest for a few minutes because then the brain will start to go i can let that go now and you don't even have to say i'm letting it go you're just saying i feel stressed oh, it's getting lower because we just use a subjective you know sods rating out of 10 to see if there's change happening for you so You just have to be honest. And people aren't used to acknowledgement. Acknowledge how you feel. How do you feel? Do you feel tired? Say you feel tired. Oh, I mean, you don't have to have a coffee. You've got enough energy to finish the day. So you just have to acknowledge. But it it feels way better and easier. And we think we're on a, a better path to happiness and abundance and, you know, good relationships if we pretend. And we're like, well, if you're pretending, there's a little voice in the back of your head. Deep in the unconscious, it goes. That's not true. That's not true.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's a great story to tell others. You know, yeah. Totally, that, it's
1: all stories. I mean, everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The power of acknowledgement. You, you might have something to add to this. I heard uh, someone said to me last week uh, two things. They said, "Alex, an acknowledged emotion will only last ninety seconds." Now, whether it's ninety seconds or whether it's three minutes. The fact is we've got to acknowledge our emotions, um, which is a big, actually, lesson that I'm kind of going through at the moment. And what he also said to me, he said, Alex, we are here in this reality so we can feel. That is what we're here to do. And I just thought It was so profound. It was like there's so much good in that. You know, if you really sit with that and, and, and feel it <laughs> and think about what that means, we're here to feel. And acknowledging... If we're feeling tired or acknowledging if we're pissed off or angry or whatever and just sitting with it and feeling it um there's so much power in that and this is exactly what i'm hearing we're doing and when we're tapping is we're saying uh oh, i'm pissed off yeah i'm pissed off <laughs> pissed off about that thing you know and yeah and then because we're acknowledging the it and then it, we we can actually process it instead of push it away suppress it you know, run away, whatever that might be, not actually acknowledge it. And then 10 years later, you're still dealing with whatever that thing was still in there and your brain's having to deal with it every single moment. You're just not consciously aware of it. That's the real work. And I think to your point, it's easy to say affirmations, but it is hard to deal with the temperance of life, you know, in those hard moments, whatever they are for you, that's the work. And it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> that's the-
1: And it's you know, sometimes to not express a feeling. Gender comes into it definitely, you know, about certain emotions. And and you're right, an acknowledged emotion loses its power because what can you do with it if you go, hi, yeah, I feel angry. Hmm, okay. So it, it can't sort of, you know, lurk around if we acknowledge it. And Carl Jung back in the day, they were like all change starts with acknowledgement. So the biggest question we get asked is why are we tapping on the negative? And it's like, no, no, it's how you feel. You know, how do you feel? Because sometimes people probably believe if I say how I feel, then I have to do something about it. And it's like, well, just tap. Then that's what you're doing. And then just see what opens up or what emerges. It might be that you don't have to do anything radically different because you're able to let it go. And I see that, you know, we said before we started today, you know, is there anything I really wanted to talk about? The resilience movement. That's my soapbox moment if I'm kind of, you know, at a conference, which I was a few weeks ago talking (laughs) to school leaders. I'm like, the problem with resilience in schools, particularly in Australia and worldwide, it's like, you know, how fast can you bounce back? And everyone wanted to get on this resilience bandwagon. But what's missing for a child is in that message, how fast can you bounce back, is how. Like a, a little child that sees that messaging in a school, like, you know, kind of, try and become more resilient. It's like how, Like they don't know how. They don't know how to let go of a, a big feeling. They don't know. They get in trouble if they express a big feeling in a class because it's often anger or frustration because the brain's not developed, but then they get in trouble. So then you just learn this whole culturization around, okay, well, I'm not allowed to express that because I get in trouble and I have to keep that one inside. And we now know You keep those levels of emotions inside. They all have a neurohormone that matches. Give yourself 20 to 30 years, you'll get a chronic illness. And they're all absolutely linked with, you know, certain feeling states that you've held for a very long time because that neurohormone that matches that signature erodes the cells in the body. So... I keep threatening my students, I'm going to write a chart of every newer hormone and what disease you end up getting. They're like, do it. And I'm like, it'll take me ages to go dig in the research, but (laughs) we all know it. We're all like, you hold that, resentment's a really good one. You hold resentment in your life as a common default state for 20, 30, 40 years, and maybe that's come out of a childhood trauma. You are absolutely guaranteed to get certain cancers and that research has already been shown so it's like we know what illness you're going to get so it's like why you do something about the feeling just so you don't get those illnesses
0: mm. you
1: know so yeah so much out there
0: um what about if we're harboring anger for 20 or 30 years how does that express in chronic illness
1: yeah anger is a surface emotion funnily enough so anger is kind of s- accepted a little bit more in society if you're angry but anger is a um surface that sits on top of another deeper emotion so anger looks like someone's just sort of you know exploding and anger some people can be useful because it might fire them up to I don't know get on with something do something but often it's the deeper feeling that it's kind of sitting on top of and it could be that I don't know it's deep deep disappointment but it's expressed as anger. So we're normally trying to find out what's underneath anger. Anger's not the one because anger. Anger, funnily enough, the hormone, we taught our chronic pain patients, there's a lot of chronic pain sufferers are angry. They're either angry at what happened to them, angry at how pain has interfered in their life, angry at the body area, whatever, anger's huge. But every time you're in a really long state of anger, there's a neurohormone that's released and norepinephrine that's an analgesic dulls pain. So it makes biological sense for a chronic pain patient to stay angry because it makes the pain less. So when they start tapping on the pain or anger, the analgesic drops off that effect of the neurohormone and then they feel the pain. And we had to tell them so they wouldn't go, oh tapping didn't work. I felt worse. It's like, no, no, we're going to keep going. Mm. That was the aha moment for them. They were like, oh wow, anger keeps my pain Dull. And so anger makes sense in fight or flight. You're like, oh, I've got to go and, you know, fight the fight and dull all my pain so I can run away from the, you know, bear at the cave, that kind of thing. So it's like they have, there's, there's good biological reason why we have them. It's just not long term. <laughs> just mm-hmm. don't, don't have it for 30 or 40 years. That's not good.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's always, there's always something deeper, isn't there? Um, when we really get down to it. Whatever's happening in our childhood, usually there's something there, traumas along the way. Um, yeah, fascinating, and yet it's probably another conversation, but um, there's lots of money being thrown into cancer research, and perhaps if some of that could be diverted into um, the cause of that cancer, <laughs> one of which being what you've just shared, I think 100 where the yeah. magic
1: is. We ran a cancer trial in the start of 2020 for a local integrative health service who had been looking at other psychological techniques kind of trying to find one that they were recognising patterns in their cancer patients and they were recognising a stressor or a trauma 12 to 18 months before the cancer diagnosis and so these were obviously not genetic kind of forms of cancer like certain breast cancers are genetic and you can be tested for it. Not those. So they were trying to find something that would help them process that stressor or trauma to see if it would have an impact and they were looking at all sorts of techniques, EMDR and whatever. And then one of the uh, directors came to a conference where I presented on EFT and he was sitting there and he came up to me and he goes, this is it, we have to do tapping. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> so we end up running this trial and The patients were going through traditional chemotherapy, radiation, whatever the process was for their cancer, but at the same time did a four-week tapping program, two hours a week, so eight hours, and we measured their cortisol before and after because cortisol interferes with other kind of, you know, chemicals that are trying to help things we measured heart rate variability and blood pressure. And every single session, they kept their cortisol low. uh, They were able to tolerate. So tapping helps with nausea, with chemotherapy. So they weren't sort of well. And so we kind of have published some that we compared to treatment as usual. And we are, again, looking to extend that. Trial, because we had about 30 in each group. And I have kind of written about that with a, a blog post on a integrative health medicine website. So we want to revisit that because there, the cancer field is opening up. We had a cancer symposium just on EFT uh, earlier this year in March. And all of the trials being run in cancer with tapping are growing in the UK, here, Malaysia, Iraq, around the world. So it's an area that is growing. It's just about funding. It's just about you need a little bit of money to kind of run these things. So that's sort of where it comes back to. But yeah, it's an area we've had a look at.
0: Yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. This episode is brought to you by Found Space, Australia and New Zealand's premium infrared sauna company. Ready to sauna? Ready to take your health to a higher level? Make your home a place of wellness with Found Space. Visit foundspace.com.au or foundspace.co.nz to learn more what is it about tapping that makes it so much more effective than some of these previously kind of existing, like MDR as an example? Um, yeah, because yeah. because to me, it's, it's sounding like we're just regulating the nervous system in a really powerful way, but there's obviously a little bit more going on, but what is it that makes it so much more effective than some of these other ways? Is it what you were saying before about the way that it, it's retraining the existing pathways and that sort of thing
1: yeah that absolutely is coming into play and i think oh, i remember half a dozen studies that have compared to emdr the eye movement and eft and EMDR are highly comparable they get very similar outcomes eft has achieved most of its outcome in six to ten sessions for most chronic complex diagnosis so things that aren't as complex take way less time than that. EMDR is still probably a bit more lengthy. So time can come into it and then cost comes into it for people. So if something achieves the same outcomes, but it is quicker, then we should ethically offer that as well. Um, But we see EMDR in the same, we call it this fourth wave of therapy that's coming back to what's in the body and, you know, the body keeps the score and that kind of stuff. So it's just that you need someone else to do EMDR. And to me, that's a major difference. So you need to go and see someone. Sometimes they're using binaural sound, eye movement. You need someone to guide that. Tapping you can do on your own. So yes, we highly recommend you see someone if, it's a complex and say there's childhood trauma and you don't quite know how to unpack that because we don't need you to relive it. We don't need you to, you know, relive exactly what, so you're best in the hands of a capable, skilled, you know, qualified practitioner for that. But you can tap on your own to feel less stressed. You can tap, you know, in the bathroom if you've got a meeting to go to, or you've got a presentation and you quickly need to regulate yourself. My students tap in the exams. So they they just, because you can do this and no one knows what you're doing. <laughs> so, you know, people know what I'm doing because they all know me at work. <laughs> but So people rub their temples all the time if they have a headache and it's like, that's an acupuncture point. So my students do it in exams. They do it in, you know, public places and no one knows what you're doing. EMDR, you tend to have to have someone guide you, so there's a main difference there. But they are achieving very similar outcomes. EMDR talks about a different mechanism that's being taxed in the brain, so they're talking about your working memory as you can't, and this is true, you can't hold a distressing memory and have an opposite feeling, and the opposite feeling we're all trying to get is calm. So you can't hold... Intense distress and at the same time calm, because calm wins. That's just that's just the rule. So if we're going like this, and that's sending a deactivating signal to my stress center, then I can't say I feel stressed for a very long period of time and do this and and still feel stressed. That's what's collapsing. So it's it's that's rule of memory reconsolidation. At the same time, you feel the negative feeling. Do do the opposite. And I say, if you don't want to do tapping, find something else. Deep breathing doesn't seem to do it for a lot of people and breath can be triggering if you've been traumatised. Most people hold their breath, you know, shock, trauma response. Breathing doesn't work. I do research with Dr. Joe Spencer, so I analyse all his meditation trials. So meditation will often get you to similar places, but it takes longer, it takes practice. Um, I say I'm a failed meditator, but I'm a really good tapper <laughs> <laughs> because. Sometimes I'm just too busy and, yeah, yeah, we're getting to the same state in the long run, but sometimes you might want other strategies. Um, You know, it could be guided imagery gets you there as well. So it's just about what can you do at the same time you feel stressed or distressed and calm will always win. Have you got a better way to feel? Music does it for people. Massive. My eldest daughter is studying to become a music therapist massive research in music music changes state oh yeah that can do it so it just, it just depends yeah
0: mm, yeah i love that and and getting out in nature as well is a great way to regulate and yeah. hugs like forms of co-regulation are just yeah powerful stuff
1: pet therapy pet the pets you know yep.
0: yeah 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 for me it's like noodling around on the guitar for an hour or just yeah you know it's good stuff perfect Amazing. I've got one last specific question. If we're tapping, like, is there a difference between tapping really fast and, like, tapping slowly? Like, is there a pace that we need to be doing the tapping?
1: Uh, Typically, no. So the original method said, because most people go, how many times do I tap on each point? And the answer is seven times, but that really is just enough to activate it. So in the OCD trials, we don't tell them that because sometimes they'll count. (laughs) You're not supposed to be counting it's just tap long enough to say, so it might be that it's, um I feel stressed and then I move on. I feel stressed. I move on, that kind of thing. Sometimes I might say slightly longer words. So the only time it makes a difference and we looked at, we did a massive expert study where we looked at really highly skilled practitioners around the world that were working in full private practice with clinical diagnosis. And we wanted to know, when they're working with people with anxiety disorders versus depression disorders, was there a difference? And this is the difference that came out. So I'm really glad you asked because they said when they work with people with anxiety disorders, they purposefully tap slower to give that person a sensation of slowing down, but the opposite was true with depression. They tap faster. And if you're obviously doing it and the client's following, they tap faster for depression because they're trying to activate. So it was a really good point that if you find that you're an anxious person by trait, slow your tapping down. So just do it slower. Just do it a bit slower or just take That's longer. really cool. So it's so, like
0: you can kind of if you need to upregulate, it's a faster tap and if you want to down regulate it's a slower tap yeah. which yeah you say it out loud and it's like well it's kind of intuitive and yet sometimes it isn't i think about when i'm trying to rock our eight-month-old baby to sleep or sometimes like he likes being bounced <laughs> and like when i'm doing that like a fast bounce just kind of doesn't work as much as a slow bounce because i'm trying to downregulate him so he goes to sleep as opposed to...
1: And there's acupuncture points all up and down the spine Mm -hmm. in us and animals. So that's when you rub a a baby's spine and even with two fingers, and it works on pets as well, they will calm. So you can actually... I tapped on my babies when they were little because I'd already learnt it. Um, So I would just gently tap for them to go to sleep and it worked perfectly every time and I tap on the puppy. Um, So... Lots of vets now teach tapping in their waiting rooms and they just come out and say, just do this on your pet if your pet's anxious because often they'll have a pre-existing memory of having been to the vet. Mm -hmm. And so vets will come out and say, horses, there's lots of equine therapists that do tapping. They just tap the same kind of points. The only exception is cats. Cats don't really like too much facial tapping. (laughs) So just do the spine on the cat. (laughs) So the spine, they'll often... Yeah, they'll stretch, but baby's perfect because there's all acupuncture points up and down that spinal area.
0: Mm, Yeah, really good call. Love it. This has been really fascinating. And what I've really enjoyed about this conversation is that it's just a reminder that, like, we can do the healing and it doesn't have to be super, like, difficult and painful, although that may come up as we spoke about the hippocampus, but... Yeah, there's just a simplicity to it, which is, to me, just really beautiful. And, um, yeah, I've certainly learned a lot myself. Um, and, and thank you for sharing about the nervous system in in the way you kind of see it. And, and yeah, it's just been really insightful. So I'm very grateful for your time. Um, to wrap us up, uh, is there anything you want to share with the audience, anything you're kind of actively working on um, and anything that you kind of want to mention? And then also where can people find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. All the socials, so just, uh, you know, Peter Stapleton, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, all those bits. We share lots of our research. Uh, We also have all our clinical trials are free to attend. I'll tell you the next one that's coming up, so it'll kick off early 2024. Free to do. It'll be self-paced and online. And we're looking at, we're replicating a trial from 10 years ago, um, EFT to improve eyesight So people that wear glasses or vision impairment, a lot of emotion held in eyes. So we're actually running an eight-week self-paced. So it'll be completely free. So people follow us on social media. You'll see when I start to post saying, hey, it's open. You just have to fill out my questionnaires before and after because that's how we get data. (laughs) So that one is going to be open to the whole world to actually participate in. Otherwise, my website, peterstapleton.com, obviously you can join a newsletter there to get all our access to things. Uh, as well so if anyone curious my Hay House book I mentioned is called The Science Behind Tapping so it's been out for five years now but my latest book just came out this year 2023 and it's called Memory Improvement Through EFT Tapping so for a long time I'd obviously been teaching my students in exams and I'm like during the pandemic what do you do I didn't bake bread I wrote a book so I wrote my memory book. Um, so that's just come out this year, which is absolutely filled with practical tips of how to use it for your little ones, learning their spelling timetable to how to remember your passwords if you're aging, dementia disorders, um, you know, as well as everything in between. I have a whole section on how to remember people's names when you first meet them. Love so, it. you know, <laughs> a bit of tapping. So lots of practical the words to say are in that book, so they're on my website. You can have a look, everyone, if you're um curious to read more.
0: Beautiful. Well, uh, first of all, congrats on writing your second book. It's um, not to be understated. That's a real mission. Well done. <laughs>
1: yes. um, it's like another baby, you know. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, And, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really insightful. I'm grateful for your time, and, um, yeah, I'll, I'll see you soon.
1: Pleasure. Thanks, everyone.
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.